The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Good morning, Gospel City Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and it's my pleasure to open the Word of God uh, and preach today. Uh, we've just read the passage out of Hebrews, so hopefully you have a Bible and you already have it opened to this passage. Um, we are near the finish line. So today's sermon title is Living in Light of the Finish Line. We're almost finished with Hebrews. But even more than that, we are, as we read a couple of weeks ago when Kyle preached, uh, we are in a race. And we are nearing the finish line in the Christian race. Some of us may be closer to the end than others, but we need to live in light of the finish line. As we were told a few weeks ago, we're in a stadium with spectators, those who have gone before us, who are cheering us on, and we are to continue in this race. We're in an arena, an assembly of supporters. We're still running. And so as we think about today's message, I hope that you will put yourself in the mindset of being in an arena and that you're not a spectator, but that you are a runner and that you are participating in the race. Uh, it's no surprise to those of you who know me that I'm an avid sports fan and uh, sports has been a major part of my life. I remember in 1996, my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, hosted the Olympics. And uh, I remember just about every day taking the public transportation to go downtown to either witness a uh, sporting event or to see those who had already participated on a big stage uh, celebrating their gold medals. It was really cool to be part of the spectators but really what I wanted was to be a participant. Now, God had not blessed me with the uh, athletic ability and gifts and even discipline that I needed to participate as an athlete, but it was still inspiring. I remember at the uh, closing ceremonies of the 96 Olympics, there was uh, some of the USA track and field team who had won gold medals. They were, they were there, they had paraded in, and you know people are celebrating. I remember one of the commentators had found a, one of the, the athletes who had won a gold medal and found him with a small Ziploc bag. And in that Ziploc bag, there were like little sugary candies, Skittles and runts and other little things, just a small little bag of sugar. And uh, I remember the commentator asking the athlete, hey, uh, what are you eating? He said, oh, I haven't. I've been training for this moment for my entire life. And for the last six years, I have not had any sugar. And so this is my reward that I'm eating sugar. And I thought, you know, watching that, wow, what discipline to abstain from something that would keep you from winning the gold. That athlete lived with the finish line in mind. And today, as we are in this race, as we're participating, as we're seeking for the reward, may we live with such discipline and may we live with such an eye on the prize that we would run this race in light of the finish line. Let me pray for us as we dive in to this passage. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace that you have demonstrated to us by giving us your word, that in your word we are instructed, that we're corrected, and Father, that we are uh, discipled through it to live lives that honor you, that please you, and that ultimately glorify you. As we dive into this passage today, would you give me, as your spokesman, uh, strength and clear words and clear thoughts. Would you give the congregation today, Father, ears to hear and hearts to comprehend everything that you would have for us to hear. 
Lord, we give you this time and ask you to move according to your ways for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what does the author of Hebrews want us to remember as we strive for the finish line of the Christian life? There's three things that I want to point out in this passage as we work through it. You're going to see in verses 14 to 17 that we're going to see, we're going to see that we ought to pursue godliness. In verses 18 to 24, I want you to see that the author wants us to cultivate a greater vision of God. And verses 25 to 29, he is telling us to receive God's reward. To receive God's reward. So these are going to be the three sections that we go through. So let's dive into verses 14 through 17 uh, as we consider pursuing godliness. Let me reread these verses for us. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it. If you're taking notes and you have something you want to write down, just underline, see to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We begin this passage with the word strive in the ESV. Some translations may say pursue. This is a stronger word than just to seek something out. It's not just look for something. It's not as though you've lost something and you want to find it. No, this is, this is a striving, pursuing with full and complete attention, with energy and effort and urgency to find something, to get something. And so we are being exhorted here to make every effort to strive with peace or for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is an effort that we are to put forward here. We are to put forward this effort so that we will see the Lord. Now notice, strive for peace with everyone. This can be taken one of two ways. It can be an individual command, right? You, Ekin, strive for peace with everyone. Everyone that you come in contact with, strive for peace. Or it could be, hey, everyone, strive for peace. As the audience hears this message. And I think we should take it both ways. As individuals seeking for peace with everyone that we're in contact with. And as a congregation gathered together, seek peace together with everyone. Now, notice it does not say, achieve it. (laughs) The author of Hebrews recognizes that achieving peace with everyone, well, in a sinful world, is going to be temporary. But that does not alleviate the command to strive for peace. You may achieve it at one moment, and then it's gone another moment. Uh, It's just part of living in a sinful age. There are going to be times when people are kind and good and fulfill all your expectations and and you get along and then for whatever reason there could be things that rupture a peaceful relationship. And when that happens, what do you do? You strive for peace. So strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a particular expectation of holiness for a believer. To live in a certain way that honors God, that mimics His holiness. And I think that the author has in mind the ways to strive for peace and the way to strive for holiness. Uh, his, His idea here is 
is spelled out for us beginning in verse 15 when he tells us, see to it, see to it, right? We are striving for peace. We're striving for holiness. How? By doing these things. Following in verse 15, when he says, see to it, he gives us a string of moral imperatives, commands for those who are running the race. These imperatives, they provide a pathway. They chart the course for us so that we can be faithful runners, staying on course. First, we're told, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What does it mean to obtain the grace of God? Well, the grace of God is not talking about the salvation that God brings by His grace here, but rather is talking about the grace of God that brings about holiness in our lives as we walk with Him on a day-to-day basis. What are the things of holiness that, or what are the things of God's grace that brings about holiness and peace in our lives? It is that daily walk with Him. It is that spending time in His Word, spending time gathered together with other Christians. You see, we are not just to seek peace on our terms, but we seek peace and we seek holiness on God's terms that He has instructed us by His grace. We seek that out. We seek it out as uh, we, we seek it out individually, but also notice it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's not just that you are to look over yourselves, but the command here is that you are to see to it that no one. So your brothers and sisters together are looking out for you and you are looking out for them. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We ought to be so concerned, not just with our own individual race, but that we are concerned about the race that our brothers and sisters in Christ are running. That's one reason why we make such a big deal of covenant partnership at Gospel City Church. Because as a covenant partner, we take each other's Christian walk seriously. We want to encourage one another to finish the race and to finish the race well. It's one of the reasons that we put so much emphasis on this because in this we are committing to certain things together. The gathering of ourselves together, the the worship of God together, a particular uh, equipping that we are equipped to serve others and that we seek to live a life that is transformed for the glory of God. And we don't just do it just for an individual, but we do it as a collective unit. So, As a church, we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We want to make God's grace available to anyone and everyone who would join with us to hear the words of God, to be discipled, to be transformed, to grow in God's grace and mercy. As a church, we want everyone to have access to this grace. It's one of the reasons we celebrate things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. I mean, there's nothing about baptism and the Lord's Supper that actually brings about salvation in our lives, but there is grace in that practice that reminds us of what God has done for us and what God is doing for us and what God will do for us. And so we constantly seek out ways to make the grace of God available to us all. So we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, but we also see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. We see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Now, oftentimes we would read something like this and we would think, oh, it is my personal responsibility to guard myself and to evaluate my own mind and my own heart to see that no root of bitterness springs up in me that I become bitter. 
But in the context here, it's not just me individually looking out for myself, but it is brothers and sisters looking out for each other to make sure that no root of bitterness springs up. Let's be honest here. No one in this room makes the decision to say, hey, I want to be bitter. Did you wake up this morning and just say, I want to be bitter? Nobody has a disposition that says, this is what I want. This is how I want to be. We've been around people who are bitter before. We don't necessarily like being around people who are bitter. Sometimes if you're around a bitter person, you may find a way out of that conversation or out of that social situation because you just don't want to be around a bitter person because it's not enjoyable. And so no one wakes up and says, hey, I want to be bitter. But bitterness happens, doesn't it? I mean, if we're all honest, at some point in our lives, we've been bitter about something. Maybe we were passed over in our workplace for a promotion or for a raise. Perhaps we were overlooked in a social situation where, you know, we got left out of a invitation to a party or a gathering. Maybe, I don't know, bitterness comes from so many places and it happens. And you know what? If you don't tend to those issues in your life that could cause bitterness to spring up, then bitterness begins to take root. And as it takes root, it begins to entangle itself in our lives and in our relationships. Most of us would say, yes, it is my responsibility to unroot bitterness in my life where I find it. But did you know that as a brother and sister in Christ, you have a responsibility and an obligation, and yes, even grace, to help your brother and sister who has bitterness to unroot that bitterness in their life? You see, this command that the author gives, see to it, is not just for the elders or pastors in the church to find the bitter roots in the church and pluck them out. No, it is for everyone who is gathered in the church to seek out those who have bitterness and to go to them in loving ways and, hey, brother, sister, I see bitterness. How can I help you uproot that bitterness so that you can have full joy in God. See, as bitterness takes root and grows, bitterness breaks fellowship. It breaks joy. It breaks unity. And if we are to be striving and seeking and pursuing peace with everyone and for holiness, then bitterness can't have a place. So it's not just me as an individual having to look out for myself I need to look out for others. And you need to look out for your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Particularly if you're a covenant partner, you have an obligation with your other covenant partners at Gospel City Church to see bitterness uprooted so that it does not divide the church. Because we are to seek peace. And peace and bitterness do not exist in the same way. Place. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up. See to it, in verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Well, this is weird. Because reading this, uh, I, get to, I get the idea that no one should be sexually immoral. And I get that no one should be unholy like Esau, but it almost seems like the author is saying that Esau was sexually immoral and unholy. And I read it and it just, I don't know, it just throws me for a loop and you go back and you read and there, there's nothing in scripture that tells us that Esau was particularly sexually immoral, like just calling it out that, hey, he practiced sexual immorality. There are those in uh, church history and, and even before the church in Old Testament times where, where people would write about Esau and try to make some correlations. And um, I, honestly, I, I don't have an answer for it. I, I couldn't find a satisfying answer for what the author means here uh, about 
sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. But what is clear is that the author is telling us that as we see to it within the church, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. See to it that no one is unholy. Once again, it's this command for us not to just look out for our own selves, but to look out for those who perhaps would be led down this path, who would go off course in the Christian race. Look out for those. Warn them. See to it that no one falls into these traps. You may say, hey, uh, Chris, if I see someone who is not engaging in the grace of God, who's not spending time with the Lord on a regular basis, reading His Word, worshiping Him on a daily basis, meditating on His Word. If I see somebody who's not participating in in church gatherings, maybe, uh, Chris, I see someone who I think is bitter about something, but I don't really know what it is. Or I see someone who's living a life that is less than holy. Well, I see it, but, you know, I really don't want to approach them because that's just kind of an awkward conversation to have. Hey, brother, hey, sister, uh, I think you're bitter, or I think you're making some choices in your life that, well, it's just not honoring to God. It's unholy. Those are awkward conversations. You know, what I would rather do is tell somebody else who can tell somebody else who can tell somebody else, and then maybe it'll get around to that person that they need to straighten up. I know that, you know, culture kind of dictates some of the things that we say and some of the things that we do, but, you know, there is a culture in the kingdom of God that is different than the culture in the kingdom of earth. And I think part of us growing in grace and part of us striving and pursuing the things that God has for us is to get over the awkwardness that our world today tells us exists and that we seek those things. If we believe that our brothers and sisters in Christ are truly our brothers and sisters in Christ who will be with us for eternity in the kingdom of heaven, then there is no awkwardness in approaching them when we sense that maybe things are not on the straight and narrow, it's actually, uh, if someone is a brother or sister in Christ and you approach them, you know what? They may actually say, hey, thank you for coming to me with this concern. Thank you for addressing this. Uh, I remember one time in the church that we were attending in Kentucky, uh, I was working with a youth group And there was one particular leader in that youth group who had a really good relationship with, and then something happened. And and then, you know, a couple of weeks, months went by, and I started noticing that our relationship wasn't what it used to be. Uh, It kind of kept me at arm's distance. We weren't talking and laughing like we used to. And I, I don't know what was happening, but I approached my friend. And I said, hey, brother, um, I, I don't know what's going on. But I sense an awkwardness in our relationship. Have I done something to offend you? And of course, he would say what? No, everything's fine. And it's like, okay, cool, maybe it's just me. And then the next week at church, my brother came to me and he said, you know, after you approached me last week, I started thinking and examining my heart. And I realized that, yes, there is a problem in our relationship. And we began to talk, and he said, hey, you remember like four months ago, we were on this trip with a bunch of students, and you said this, and you did this, and I said this, and I did that, and and we had a little bit of a disagreement. I've never gotten over that disagreement. And it's just taken root in my life, and it, it led to our relationship being fractured. He said, hey, will you forgive me for holding bitterness against you? Of course I forgave him. And our relationship was restored. But you know what? It would have been really easy for me to just assume, well, you know, relationships drift apart. People just have different things that they emphasize in their life, or they have different interests, and so maybe this 
brother is interested in something else and doesn't value our relationship the way he used to, and so I'm not going to address him. It's easy to not address these things, isn't it? Because it's awkward to have that conversation. And yet, there's fruit, there's goodness that comes from addressing these things. We ought to hear this. See to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. See to it that no one is unholy. See, the thing about not being unholy like Esau is that Esau, by birthright, he was the firstborn. He's the one who should have received an inheritance. He is the one who should have received a blessing. But those who are familiar with Esau's story know that Esau had particular fleshly desires. He desired a meal. He was hungry and he wanted a meal. So he sold his birthright to his younger brother for a meal. He did not value what his inheritance said that he deserved. And so he just cast it off for immediate gratification. I wonder how many of us, at a time where we seek some immediate gratification, some immediate pleasure, we tune out the grace of God in His Word, where He has spoken to us and given us clear instructions about how we ought to live a holy life. We tune Him out so that we can have that, immediately, that immediate fleshly desire granted. We're not to be like that. We're not to follow the pattern of Esau. See, in chapter 11, the author gave us all of these men and women who had gone before us in faith, who lived by faith, and they were given to us as examples that we ought to follow in our race. And now we get here in chapter 12, and we get, we get one mention of this guy who lived a life of unholiness. And he's the example of the guy we ought not to follow. We ought not to be like him. Verse 17 tells us that you know afterward when Esau desired to receive the blessing that he deserved to get his inheritance, he didn't receive it. He was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Does this mean that God will not grant somebody the opportunity to repent if they want to repent from their sins and receive His grace and forgiveness? That's not the picture that we have for Esau. See, in Esau's story, we see that he wants the prize. He wants the blessing. He wants the inheritance. He wants it so desperately, he cries and weeps for it. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't repent. He doesn't repent. He wants the good gift, but he doesn't want to repent. He never repented. Repentance is a word we use in church a lot. Some of you may wonder, what is repentance? Well, repentance is defined this way, a change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to God. A turn from sin to obedience to God. One way to think about it is simply this, turning from sin and self and turning to Christ alone. And it's not just turning to Christ alone for salvation to receive some sort of prize, but it's turning to Him alone as Lord of our lives. You see, if you say, well, I don't want the rewards of sin, and I don't want the rewards from following myself. I do want the rewards of Christ, but I'm not willing to submit to Christ as Lord, then you don't get His rewards. You can't live for yourself and live for sin as though it's your master and receive the rewards of Christ. Esau's example of someone who wants the rewards but is not willing to 
do what is necessary to receive the reward is a warning we should listen to. What must we do to receive the rewards of God? We repent. We turn from sin. We turn from ourself. We turn to Christ. So, as we are in this race, we pursue godliness. We pursue godliness as we strive for peace, as we strive for holiness, as we look out for one another, that everyone is able to live according to the grace of God, being informed by His grace, that there's no root of bitterness that springs up, that we're not sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. We must pursue godliness. If we're doing these things that the author instructs us to do in verses 14 through 17, we are pursuing godliness. We're pursuing a life that honors God. We're on course in our race. We pursue godliness. Well, next we come to verses 18 to 24. As we come to verses 18 to 24, we read in verse 18, the first word, for. Now, those of you who've been around long enough know that sometimes we'll say this thing that every preacher likes to say at some point in their life, that in a passage, when you come to the word, therefore, you have to ask what's therefore, therefore. And, And sometimes the same thing is true about the word for. For is a word that causes us to look back at what came before. Sometimes the word for simply is reminding us to look back at the most previous statement. But as we get to this for, at this part of the letter to to the Hebrews, and as we see what the author is about to tell us, we recognize that this for is not telling us to look back at what just came before in chapter 12. Not just what came before in chapter 11 or 10 or 9, but he's saying based on everything from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 17, he tells us, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. You have not come to this. You see, you have to remember the audience that this letter is written to are people who are Jewish background Christians who are being tempted to turn away from Christ, to turn away from the grace of God in Christ, and to go back to the stipulations and expectations of worship in the Old Covenant. And here the author is going to summarize for us the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that he has talked about all throughout the first 11, uh, 12 uh, chapters in this letter. And he does it by drawing our attention to two mountains. He says, You have not come to to, uh, what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose Words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The author is reminding the audience of Mount Sinai, where God came and met with Moses and gave the law, which served as a foundation for the Old Covenant with the people of Israel. It was a terrifying time. So much so that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The people would hear God on the mountain and they were terrified because His voice struck fear in their heart. And in some ways, this fear was good. It was reverence for God. There was a a holy fear. But there was also a fear where they were terrified if they would live or die. It was a mountain they could physically touch. They could physically see. They could hear those words. But the author says, you have not come to that mountain. 
It's not that we're going back in history to Mount Sinai. Rather, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to a better mountain, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have not come to a mountain that invokes fear. You have come to a mountain that invokes celebration and worship and glory. Why in the world would you want to turn back to Mount Sinai when you have Mount Zion in front of you? Why would you turn back? These, this comparison is what's been going on this entire letter. Through promises and reminders and warnings, the author of Hebrews is telling the audience, press forward in the race. The finish line is there. It's not back there. It's there in front of you. Keep going. Keep pursuing Mount Sinai stirred up gloom and doom, but Mount Zion is a place of rejoicing. Mount Sinai caused people to beg that no further message would be spoken to them. And yet Mount Zion is the place of the living God where we receive grace upon grace and we receive instructions for fullness of life. Mount Sinai is a place where people lived in fear of death and judgment Mount Zion is the place where people are made righteous and find a home for eternity. Don't go back. Press forward. Press forward to Mount Zion, the finish line. Let us receive what's promised. But you know, before you can get, before you can go from Mount Zion, or from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, you have to stop at another mountain. Between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is Calvary, a hill or a mountain. You have to go to Calvary and see Jesus. See Jesus who willingly went to a cross. He went to a cross to demonstrate God's love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin on the cross took on the wrath of God against sin so that in Him we might be made righteous. On the cross, on Calvary, Christ made the way for us to get to Mount Zion. We look to Jesus, right? The beginning of chapter 12. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We keep two mountains in view, right? We keep Calvary in view, but we also are striving for Zion. We keep going. There's the finish line. But as we strive for Zion, we have to keep something in mind to stay on course in this race. You know, some of us, we, we read about the festivities and everything that is to come in this future Mount Zion, and we can't wait to get those rewards. We can't wait to be reunited with loved ones that have gone before us. Some of us read the passage in John about Jesus going and preparing a place for us, and the King James Version talks about there being a mansion that he's preparing for us, and some of us think, oh, I can't wait till I get that mansion. We read in the book of Revelation about streets of gold and gates of all kinds of beautiful pearls and stones. And we can't wait to see all of those good and beautiful things. We need to check ourselves and be careful that we're not looking for all of these things apart from Jesus. You see, we could have all of those things. We can have a wonderful family reunion. We can have a beautiful, big home. 
We can have streets paved with gold. We can have all those things, but you know what? If we get all those things, but we don't get Jesus, it's meaningless. It's worthless. So check yourself, check your heart, check your desire. What is your finish line? What are you striving for? Is it Jesus or is it something or someone else? If you're striving for something or someone else other than Jesus, hear the warning that you may be striving for the same things that Esau was striving for. You see, Jesus is in Mount Zion, and that's where we are headed. We have to read and understand this striving for Mount Zion in this kind of already not yet tension that we have in the New Testament. We, we have the promises. We, we know what we're striving for. The kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated by Jesus, but it's not fully here. It's not fully consummated. We look to this finish line with eyes of faith. We see him with eyes of faith sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we look forward to the day when we will join with him in his kingdom. But we're not there yet. So we press on. We pursue godliness and we cultivate this greater vision of God. That it's not looking back to Zion or looking back to Sinai where we are terrified of God, but rather we're looking forward to the city of God in Mount Zion where we will be with God who fills us with joy, fills us with hope. It fills us with an abundance that we have never known. So we pursue godliness. We cultivate this greater vision of God, His city, His kingdom, this festive gathering. We pursue that. And finally, we're told in verses 25 to 29 to receive God's reward. Actually, what the author says is, do not refuse him who's speaking. But the positive way to say that is, receive what he is saying. We are to receive God's reward. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. We receive his word, we receive his promises, we listen, we embrace it, we pursue it. We cultivate that vision that he's given to us in his word, and so we re receive what he is saying. This is the final warning in the book of Hebrews. There have been multiple times through the book of Hebrews where we have encountered a warning passage, where we have been warned not to turn away because turning away would mean judgment. Verse 25 says, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. Maybe you remember earlier in the book of Hebrews when we read, how shall they escape if they neglect so great a salvation? Here we are told how those in the past did not escape God's judgment because they refused His word when His spokesman Moses spoke on earth, and now we receive a message from heaven, from Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We receive His message, His grace, His warnings, and His promises. How are we to escape if we neglect His message? The obvious answer to that question is, we will not escape. We won't. We will be like those who are judged. So we pursue to this reward. Verse 26 reminds us that at that time, on Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. But now the author reminds us that he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27 helps explain even 
Further, when he says this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is speaking to the future when there will be a judgment, where the old earth and the old heavens will pass away, and behold, all things will be made new. I don't know why. I don't even know that this is the most appropriate illustration, but the only thing I could think of when I was reading through this is cleaning in our kitchen. We clean the counters. You know how to clean, right? You start at the top and you work your way down, and then there ends up with trash all over the floor, crumbs and dust and hairs, and you sweep it up into the dustbin. But in our kitchen, we have a little rug that's right in front of the sink, and all kinds of trash and garbage gets... And so what do you do with the rug? You take the rug and you shake it to get everything out of it so that you have a clean rug. What's left is the rug. The, the point of shaking is to get rid of all the things that don't belong there. And you sweep it up into the dustbin and you discard it. I, 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 that's the image that comes to mind when I read this, that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And everything that can be shaken is going to be removed. But there are some things that He has made that cannot be shaken. There are some things that He has made that cannot be shaken. It, verse 27 says, The things that cannot be shaken may remain. Brothers and sisters, I think the things that cannot be shaken is Mount Zion, the city that's to come. Remember how Abraham left his family in search of a city whose foundation and design was built by God? That's what we're looking for. That's what cannot be shaken. That's what cannot be moved. That's what remains. And so we are in pursuit of that. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Listen, we don't reject God, we receive His reward, because in His reward we're told in Psalm 16 that it is God Himself who cannot be shaken. In Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 16, verse 8, tells us that I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. When God figuratively takes the kitchen rug and shakes it, are you going to be knocked off or are you going to be there? You're going to remain on the rug. Well, you remain if you have set God before you if you are pursuing God, if you're receiving His Word, receiving His promises, if you're cultivating that vision of God. Psalm 16, verse 9 tells us, Therefore, because I've set the Lord before me, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's stand firm in God's promise. He is the one who will not be shaken. His creation that He deems to last for eternity, He will be there if we place ourselves in Him by faith then when the judgment comes, we won't be shaken. We will receive His promise. Everything that is corruptible and everything that is defiling this world will be removed. But the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth will shine with an intense beauty. Let us pursue that. Let us receive that. And as we do that, 
we will be transformed from the inside out. We will desire to offer worship that is acceptable to God. You see, there is nothing in this world that can prevent God from triumphing. Nothing in this creation that would prevent God and His kingdom from triumphing over all. In the last several years, I've heard a lot about cultural, cultural warriors talking about being on the right side of history. They must have a complete different understanding about how history is going to end. Because when I read in Scripture, history will end in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you want to be on the right side of history, the right place to be is in God's kingdom. And we worship Him with gratefulness. We worship Him with awe and reverence because God is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. And those who listen to His heavenly warning, who receive His word, who receive His reward, will enjoy His kingdom forever. But those who forsake Him will face His fire, the fire of his anger. You see, the fact that our God is a consuming fire brings joy to his followers, but instills fear in his opponents. You see, the same fire that melts wax also hardens clay. The same fire that melts wax also hardens clay. Brothers and sisters, visitors who are with us today, I can't come up with any more words of warning than we have received from the book of Hebrews. The author has been thorough as he has written this letter to give us warnings about what refusing to listen to his words means for our lives. So, let us receive what He has promised. Let us receive what God has promised to us. Let us abstain from those things that would defile us. Let us pursue His God. Let's pursue godliness. Let's pursue His ways. Let's cultivate a vision of God that is great and awesome. Let us receive His reward in full. We're nearing the finish line. We're nearing the finish line. We're closer to the finish line today than we were yesterday. We're also nearing the finish line in the book of Hebrews. As we do it, let's remember the race that we're in. As we run the race, let's continue training in God's grace. Let us look to one another to encourage one another on in this race. Let us look to Jesus, that finish line, His kingdom, and see the joy that's set before us. And let's endure this race. Let's carry on until we receive God's reward in full. Let's pray. Father, thank You for a kingdom that we look forward to being a part of. Have your way in us. Train us. Give us the grace to endure. And for those who are not yet a part of the race, Father, would you, would you invite them in? Would you stir them up to respond to you in faith? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my